iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is The Rock. I'm Lawrence Delalio, and the most incredible story in the history of professional domestic rugby keeps getting bigger and bigger. On the weekend, Saracens confirmed their place in the Champions Cup quarterfinals. They also confirmed their place in the Championship next season. What next for the club, the players, everyone caught up in the salary cap scandal? Eddie Jones has also named his England squad for the Six Nations. We'll discuss who's in and who's out. The Times team of Owen Slot and Alex Lowe join us from Twickenham. And there was actually some rugby played this weekend. And helping me go through all of the European action are top TV commentators Alistair Eakin and Martin Gillingham. Gentlemen... Good afternoon. Great to hear from you all. Obviously, we're going to start with the uh, the biggest sports story of the weekend, which is the Kansas City Chiefs getting <laughs> getting into the final of the Super Bowl, their first Super Bowl for 50 years. I mean, I don't know how they do it with the salary cap over there, but they've made it through to the final. And Alex, you must be delighted. You must have woken up very happy. Yeah, unbelievable. It was uh, another masterclass from Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, brilliant. So uh, the next challenge is I've got to find somewhere in Paris to watch the Super Bowl, which will kick off at half midnight after the France-England game. I'm sure we can work that out between us. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's not going to be the toughest challenge, I, I don't imagine. Sounds like we're not going to bed either, but that's, uh, that's another, another matter. Gents, we, we, we cannot look anywhere else other than this incredible, incredible story around Saracens uh, and the knock-on effects it has, of course, for uh, them as a club, for English rugby, for... European rugby for international rugby, the Lions, etc. And and can I just say, and I, and I know I am biased, but but you two gentlemen down there at Twickenham have, have covered this story better than any other journalist that I've been reading. That's for sure. Oh, can you talk a bit talk a bit more about that, Lawrence? Well, where well, you have? I mean, you know, I don't know where you get all your information from, uh, and I don't know how, I don't know how you put it all together. But it's been magnificent. It really has. You've been very balanced because it's not an easy subject to to discuss. Um, so I just want to say. I'm well. Well done to you both. But listen, let's, let's get on the onto the main talking point. Saracens chose to be relegated rather than let Premiership Rugby go through their accounts for the last three, five, ten, whatever years. Does that is that a, as as much an admission of guilt as as anything? Um, because I think it needs a bit of explaining here. You know, everyone seems to think that Saracens were relegated, but they were given a number of options to comply with, um, which would have possibly even avoided relegation. So. They chose to be relegated. 
I think that a lot of people are feeling pretty miserable about what's happened. You know, there's whatever way you look at it, this is not a good story. And the idea that the English champions can be relegated for uh, uh, misdemeanors is is um, pretty awful. There's, there's there's no real good side to this. But for me, this point that you you're bringing up now is is just another sign that this probably isn't over. That we don't really know what's happened, and that and that Saracens have still haven't quite come to terms with the idea that they need to be completely honest with, uh, with with what's happened in the past because the demand was put to them that they have a forensic audit of their books and they've rejected it and as you also say that surely only su- suggests that they're hiding more stuff and if we're ever going to get to the bottom of this we need to know exactly what they've been doing and when and and we need an assurance that it's not, that it stops so this is a massive story but just because of that one tiny detail, that one nagging little detail that they just they, they elected to be relegated rather than open their books. It just means this is going to run on and on. And am I, am I the only person, I'm sure I'm not, that feels that really the, the, the credibility of the Premiership and, and rugby generally across England, I mean, if, if going back to what Mark Evans said on this pod a few weeks ago, if you are going to have a... Uh, uh, a salary cap and it's going to be enforceable and, and adhered to by clubs. You need to have independent, proper governance that sits around that cap. And I guess the feeling amongst the, the, the other owners and the other clubs and Premiership Rugby was was that the uh, the original punishment given to Saracens did not really go far enough in the sense that if you break the salary cap by a considerable amount for consecutive years... Uh, you retain your trophies, uh, you retain your status within the division, which would look likely with only a 35-point deduction, then the message that that kind of sends out to the people within our sport, not to mention the people outside of rugby, is that it's okay to cheat, you get away with it, you get a slap on the wrist, and then we move on. So I do, I do feel there's something much bigger than just what's happened here. It's about the credibility of the competition moving forward. And Alex, is that, is that fair of me to say that, or is that a bit dramatic? No, it's not. It's not dramatic at all, Lawrence. I think the um, the credibility of the league is it, it is really in question at the moment. A line in the sand was supposed to have been drawn after the 2015 investigation, which resulted in um, sort of a private deal being done so that those clubs who had breached salary cap um, weren't named. Uh, but, but the regulations weren't strengthened. And if we think back to to November, 35 point deduction and a, and a 5.36 million pound fine felt like um, a pretty stringent punishment, and certainly Saracens felt that was that was actually over the top. But I, I, what's emerged since, I think, or what happens is, I think, is, is is how we've ended up where we are now. So Saracens' reaction was was indignant, and 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 actually, the arrogance that got them into this has 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 uh, in the first place has led to where they, where they are now, in the sense that they initially <laughs> talked about challenging the the verdict, then they refused to accept that they they'd done anything wrong. Other than, I think Nigel ended up saying they'd done the wrong thing, but for the right reasons, um, as if it was everyone else who'd made the mistake here. If it was everyone else to blame for misunderstanding all the great things they were trying to do. It, it, it then, I think, while they were taking that stance and claiming that they were going to be under the salary cap for this season and there was nothing to see here, all the other club chief executives were going into Premiership Rugby's offices and reading the 103-page report, which was was damning and. Uh, some of those details have have begun to, to emerge. I mean, one of them, for example, was that Saracens were so far over that they could easily have been um, deducted 70 points, which would have guaranteed or virtually guaranteed relegation. But but the panel took a, a softer view on it. And, and I just think that there's a, a growing anger 
and frustration at the way that Saracens have handled the whole thing, the, the way that they've that they've been indignant at the fact that they, they've been found guilty, that that has driven this forward, and and the very fact they now can't get under the salary cap for this season has meant that the clubs have have taken the decision they've taken. Now I just wonder if back in November or even back in March when this when this first became public, if Saracens then had gone, do you know what? Okay, we've been caught with our hands in the till. We're going to we're going to get this sorted out. They'd have had months and months to get this sorted mm. out, but but they haven't, and and now they find themselves where they are, and yeah, and and it just opens up a whole new can of worms about what happens next with with the players. Um, there'll be you know I, every t- every year someone goes down, and so every year clubs have to have to tighten tighten the purse strings, and and people get have to get made redundant or lose their jobs, and there are. There are really good things that Saracens do, and you hope that this doesn't impact on the, the community work and the school that they've set up and all the good things that the club has done. Yeah. But a lot of it has been founded on um, on, on a reputation that's been built on on cheating. Yeah. And if you think, if they were one of the clubs that was a part of the confidential arrangement back in 2015, plus these now four seasons, that's five, at least five years where they have broken the regulations. And so it's not very hard to join the dots to work out why they wouldn't want uh, an even further in-depth audit being done uh, going back 10 years, because what else might we find? It has to be said that Saracens yesterday, following Premiership Rugby's (coughs) statement, did come out with their own statement. Neil Golding, their new chairman, for the first time really, uh, apologised to to everyone about Saracens. And I note the wording of saying we have made mistakes and errors, which was interesting. Um, but at least it was the first sort of sign of uh, of, uh, of them actually acknowledging what's happened and apologising. I just want to pick up on the point that you made there, Alex, around the implications. And Ali, if I can come to you, um, just on, you know, because the, the question everyone's asking me now is, well, well, what does it mean for Saracen's superstar players? You know, where will they go? They're obviously going to be playing in Europe for the remainder of the season, the, the premiership for the remainder of the season, although their focus won't necessarily be on there. I mean, is uh, there's talk about um, you know them having one squad to play in the championship next season and retaining players to to play in a, in another league somewhere else in the world. I mean, what do you think is the immediate future for some of these players? I think it's very difficult to gauge it, Lol. As Mark McCall told everybody yesterday, everybody's player circumstances, each player's circumstances is different to the next. Um, none of them, as I understand it, have release clauses in their contracts. I mean, if you were to move to Saracens, it wouldn't be top of your concerns when they were drawing up your contract, whether you'd need to concern yourself with relegation. Um, I think some will probably do what Mark Wilson did uh, when Newcastle were relegated and get themselves a loan deal perhaps for a season somewhere. But I think there's a limited number of people that can do that simply because these guys are big earners and they will command hefty salaries and not many clubs in the Premiership will have space under their salary cap to accommodate them. I think there'll be some of those. Um, I think some will go down to the championship and play and be loyal. Uh, and I'm thinking of people like Brad Barrett. I'm thinking of perhaps the, the younger ones, the much younger ones who aren't perhaps on the cusp of breakthroughs. Um, but then you've got a tranche of players, the likes of, of Ben Earl and Max Malins and, and Joel Kapoku, who are quite close to a breakthrough. And I think it's a big concern for them. Where do they go now? How do they play regular, meaningful rugby? Because the championship is no testing ground for either top flight Europe or indeed international rugby, which is where all of them have their aspirations. Um, so I think I think the concerns are, are, are numerous for, for every single one of those players. 
France potentially is an option if the RFU relaxed their policy on picking players who are playing overseas. If they decide that these are exceptional circumstances, some might go to France. Um, but there'll be others who've already gone to France who'll be saying, hang on a minute, just because Saracen's cheated the rules, it's suddenly okay for this mm. lot to go to France, pick up a fat wedge and still get to play for England. But that, that'll cause a massive storm in itself. I don't think Japan is an option for those who want to play international rugby because the season over there coincides with the Six Nations. I mean, it's a proper mess. I mean, it, I, mean it, I mean, it's almost... The, there is so many questions to answer here, really, and it's almost the first question will be Premier Rugby need to really accept that there's new governance uh, that, that needs to be written around what's happened and, and what will happen. And Martin, I'm going to come to you, and, and apologies if, um, if this question doesn't sit... Uh, in the way that you want. But the, I need to explain this to people. The current regulations say uh, that a team promoted from the championship must be compliant with, one, the salary cap in their promoted season and also in the season before that. And that's, that, that's how the current regulations are written. So, you know, if, if you adhere to that, then there's a chance that Saracens may have to step down for, for more than one season. They may have to step down for, for two seasons and, until... <laughs> I mean, the mire just uh, gets I mean, deeper I mean, until, and deeper, until they can Until they can get their, 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 you know, their books and yeah. their accounting into some sort of order. Yeah, I mean, a couple of points. First of all, I know Ali floated there the idea of maybe England altering their rules, the Rugby Football Union. There's no way they can be seen to be at all bending the rules in the face of what's happened here. It really would not reflect at all well on the RFU if they allow players, because there was a story in one of the papers over the weekend saying that maybe three players might might go to Lyon, for instance. When Chris Ashton went to South of France, he couldn't play for England. Why should three guys who've played for a non-compliant club come back and play for England? The, the other concern I have, and it's been touched on by the guys at Twickenham, is how this now looks. Now, there's a certain irony here. We got where we have largely because of um, a lack of transparency, deals done in smoke-filled rooms around the salary cap. Now, rather than Saracens opening their books, what's happened? We've had another opaque deal done in a room. We don't really know what's been going on at Saracens. And what we're saying collectively to the fans of all these clubs is you've now got to be happy with that. And that just reflects that the whole governance of the sport needs to be readdressed. But again, rugby is still relatively new as a professional sport. I mean, 1995, 25 years. Professional football has been around for more than a century. These things do happen. Guys, I, I want to get on to the England squad announcement, which is obviously quite quite important and quite exciting news. But just wondering whether the um, the next sort of topic of debate around this Saracen story, and I'm going to go to, to to Alex and Owen down at Twickenham. This this report, the 103 page report, some people have read it, and it puts them in a in a slightly different situation in terms of how they view what's going on but largely and I'm not talking about the general rugby public won't have any sight of it any danger or any any sign that this report in the spirit of transparency is ever going to be made public or see the light of day <laughs> no, none, none whatsoever. I mean, is that a joke, Lawrence? No, no, it wasn't because I, I don't understand how the sport can take itself seriously if it just does a little deal and and keeps it behind closed doors. Because well, what's what's to... what's going to happen is is uh, over the course of uh, 
the next few weeks, months, whatever, with the wonderful journalism that goes on in this country is that little bits of that report are going to drip feed their way out. So if you're in charge of Premier Rugby or you're um, a, a one of the clubs or all of the clubs, you're sort of thinking to yourself, how do we want to come out of this? Because all the, the truth will come out. It might take a little bit of time, but the truth will come out. And isn't it not better off to get the truth out on your terms as opposed to it being drip-fed uh, every... That's what Slotty and Arthur are for, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but Lawrence, as Martin just, just said, um, it, it, it's, it's about in, integrity um, uh, of the league. And we, we reached a point where the, the, the judgment was made and even the one of the foremost brains in the country, uh, Lord Dyson, who, who chaired the... The panel has said this report needs to be made published. Uh, needs to be made public because it's in the public interest. There are millions of people who follow this sport, um, but Premiership Rugby is sticking by a regulation that most of the clubs, I'm pretty sure, don't actually agree with anymore, which is to keep it secret. And to make matters worse, they've now relegated uh, Saracens and are still refusing to explain how that decision came about, what the process was that got them relegated. So an organisation that uh, is insistent on sticking by outdated regulations appears to have bent their own regulations to relegate Saracens but will refuse to explain how it's done and it just makes the league look amateurish and and and, and lacks integrity because what they're basically what the message basically is as, as Martin so eloquently put it about men sitting in smoke-filled rooms is this is our competition and we will do what we want and to hell with the paying public they don't deserve the right to know well the paying public absolutely deserve the right to know because without them, the sport does not exist. Um, yeah. And and I think I think this this law this report that's that's now being undertaken is in um, uh, inquiry with by Lord Miners, which is due to report back at some point in the next th- three or four months. He, he's going to come back having reviewed the entire system and make some recommendations. And my hope is now is that he comes back and and absolutely tears the whole system yeah. apart and and makes recommendations to rebuild it. And at the core of it has to be transparency. And, there, and without the truth and without the report being made public, there's a whole lobby of, of people and opinion that's saying that Saracens have been hard done by, they've been hard, you know, harshly treated, it's a personal vendetta from club owners to, to, to relegate them, etc., etc. And I think everyone then would be able to make a much more balanced and objective point of view of whether they, whether they have been, been treated fairly or not. But anyway, listen, that is for another time. We, I'd love to talk more about Saracens, but... Really, we've done that for quite long enough. I think the big news uh, that we have to discuss is the England squad announcement. That has come from Twickenham. Uh, Owen and Alex, you were both there with that squad announcement. It's a 34-man squad. Uh, the headlines are that there are eight uncapped players. There's clearly some players who have missed out who were in Japan who are either injured or just no longer required by Eddie Jones. Uh, and there's one or two surprise names there. I guess... The, the big stories or the big headlines, no Billy Vunapola because he's out the Six Nations, we know that. Um, no out-and-out out number eight named in the squad, which is a little bit odd, given that the uh, one of the world's best number eights is no longer fit. And only two scrum halves, so no real sort of movement forward on the on the scrum half debate. What, what's your overall sense of, of the squad that was uh, named today, Owen? As ever with an Eddie squad, there, there are bits of it that you go, what, what on earth is that all about? Such as the number nines, for instance, still going with Ben Youngs and Willie Hines, that there needs to be some some turnover there. Uh, and as you say, number eight, so <laughs> there isn't actually a single number eight on the list, which is which is a, a, another Eddieism. Well, not one um, that's playing well, anyway. 
Overall, I think what the, what the squad says is this is a team that's going to evolve. Eddie said after the World Cup finally, he said, this team is over. It's going to be a new team from here on in. And he said there's going to be, he was suggesting there's going to be a big turnover. Well, there's been a pretty small turnover. The, the, the players from the World Cup squad that haven't made this squad uh, are, are pretty few and far between. Most of, the, most of those are injuries. Rory McConaughey didn't make it. Dan Cole didn't make it. The, the, these aren't major decisions. Basically, Eddie, on the whole, has gone with the, the team that got him to the World Cup final, and you would expect that, and he's going to tinker with it slowly. So that's why you see a few interesting names coming in, almost all from Northampton Saints. Very exciting young players. We're all going to get excited about them today, but I'd be surprised if many of them or, or any of them get selected to start, for instance, against France. George Furbank as, as the um, fullback for England in France is is a possibility, but I think this is a this is a team that's going to move slowly, and I think that's probably quite sensible. Ali, I just just want to come to you. You, you. You're someone who who follows these players on a, on a weekly basis. The likes of Ollie Thorley, Fraser Dingwall, George Furbank, Jacob Umanga, who jumped ahead of Marcus Smith as the uh, as the third choice uh, fly half. You can't realistically see those players playing against either France or Scotland. Are we somewhat? diverted and distracted by the the size of the wider squad? Yeah, I think potentially. What are there, 34 players in there, plus a couple of apprentices in in trademark Eddie Jones style? Um, I I don't think many of those names that you mentioned are going to get a crack at it, Um, certainly in the early stages. They might get a run against the Italians. Maybe Jones will be brave enough to put one or two of them on the the bench here or there. Um, They are going to offer something a little bit different and you know, we'll go on to talk about Northampton subsequently in terms of the European Cup and in terms of what they've done this season. And they've done it with that injection of youth. Uh, who re- They really have stirred things up in that club. And I think maybe Eddie's looking for something a little bit similar to the tried and tested squad that he had in Japan. The 34-man squad has got that. Um, will the 15 look wildly different? No, I, I don't think so. The, the one thing I I'm really can't get my head around is is the scrum half situation, which um, which Slotty was talking about. To to still have Hines and Youngs as your as your one and two um, in reverse order, and to leave out Ben Spencer uh, seems counterintuitive to me. Not even a sniff for, for someone like Dan Robson. Okay, in a wasp side, not playing very well. Um, Harry Randall at Bristol's really going nicely, and he's one for the future. I just think there should be a little nod to the future at nine because that's where England need it. And goodness knows it didn't go well in the World Cup final there either. No, I mean, Martin, as, I mean, in terms of a nod to the future, Fabian Galtier has is, is given a significant nod to the to the future in the French squad. He certainly I mean, has, I mean yeah. the oldest player being 30 and, and so many new players. I mean, as our French resident expert, I mean, uh, how would the... Uh, how would the and, and given the, the fact that England are playing France in a couple of weeks' time... How will this England squad be viewed uh, on the other side of the channel? Well, I'm maybe going to be in a minority of one, but they'll be delighted if they see George Furbank at 15 because we saw a 30-second clip of Furbank scoring a glorious try at the weekend. But he didn't have a great game. And he did not look at home. He certainly wasn't owning the high balls. And I think that there'll be one or two people, whoever it is at 10, whether it's Carbonell, whether it's Jalibert, whether it's Entomac will be firing them on George Furbank if he gets a start. I think the French will fancy themselves if only because most of these guys haven't played too much Test Rugby. They had a good World Cup, 
despite what happened in the end, and they are essentially new blood. I mean, these are the core of this squad have won, have won the last two World Under-20 titles, yeah. for heaven's sake. I mean, uh, Alex, I'm gonna, uh, as someone who's very close to what goes on in the England squad, I mean, obviously no Dan Cole, we kind of expected that. Um, Billy Vanapola injured, Wilson, Thokkanasinger, Noel, um, you know, injured as well, Slayed out. Um, I mean, do you think Eddie Jones has, has pulled any surprises here? I mean, I guess for me, I, I agree with with the guys on the on the scrum half. That was always going to be a bit of a, a thorny selection, and he and he stuck with what he knows. But also, the back row is a bit of a mystery for me. Um, I, I'm I'm slightly confused by the omission of the likes of Simmons, Don Brandt, as someone who played six, seven and eight in the back row for England, picked out a position for my first 12 caps and have a clue what I was doing at, num- at open side. Then I, then I played six and I ended up playing eight. So I've got a rough idea what happens around that, around that, that area. And, um, I'm Can just, you understand what's I'm just happening? Quite, I'm just quite shocked, really, by some of the selections. I mean, obviously, Maritoji is, is being viewed as a, as, a, as a six as well because there's a, a whole range of different locks um, in the squad. But I'm, I'm, I'm worried about no out-and-out out number eight. Well, one of the things that I, I sort of picked up in the last week or so was that it, it might be Laws who's being viewed as, as the six. And I also think that it, this won't be the final squad that he names this six nations. So I think there are other players who... Who, who might be introduced as the tournament goes on, an Alex Dombrandt, for example, or a Ben Curry, mm. for, for example. Um, in ter- so uh, the back row is a surprise because there's no out-and-out out number eight. And, but I think Dombrandt's probably... or Tamana Harrison would be the other one, but I, I just think... I don't think Northampton have managed to convince Eddie Jones that, that Tamana Harrison is, is big enough for the role. I think Eddie likes to look at of Lewis Ludlam there. Otherwise, the, it's not... There aren't, Loads of surprises. Um, there are some new names with very little run-up, someone like Alex Moon. But I think, as Sossi said, they're, they're a nod to the future. I think the two Prentice players are interesting. One, it'll be good news for Saracens that Eddie Jones has picked someone from the championship because it'll give them, give them a, bit of, a bit of a boost before next season. Jo- Josh Hodge is in as an apprentice. And, uh, and Alex Mitchell, who is really highly regarded as a scrum half at Northampton, one of this clutch of of really promising Northampton players coming through. He's been injured pretty much all season, so he wasn't in contention for main selection, but he will link up with with the squad. And, and, and perhaps that is one of those nods to the future that, that Ali was talking about, that if he can get fit, he may well uh, get promoted into the into the senior squad because he's... I, I certainly know Northampton think he... I mean, one of the reasons they're not... I mean, they don't want to lose Kobus Reinach, but they, they really feel that Kobus Reinach has, has been a great influence on mm. Alex Mitchell and that... Next season could be could be the time that he really grabs hold of that position. For those Irish, Welsh, Scots, uh, French, and Italians, we will be doing a full nod to the Six Nations preview next week, and we'll be looking at all of those squads in a lot more detail. But uh, for now, gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. That was a, a wonderful look at the England squad. And just w- w- when when do they all get together, Alex? What's the timetable for the England team? And can you ask me the question that I should know the answer to? Uh, do they play any part in the Premiership rugby before the French game, or or are they uh, wrapped in cotton wool from between now and the Six no, Nations? They're, they're on England time now, so they meet up on Wednesday at Penny Hill, then they head to Portugal on Thursday for a training camp, and will fly straight from Portugal to Paris for the first game. Eddie will have to release some players back to in, back to the Premiership as part of the the agreement, but the core squad who are going to play against France will now spend the next two weeks on England time. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ali Eakin and Martin Gillingham are still here to discuss all the uh, wonderful European rugby from across the weekend. Gentlemen, the main talking points, I guess, three English clubs. Yes, three English clubs through to the knockout stages. Three French, two Irish make up the last eight. And I guess I should really start with you, Al. The big story, obviously, Saracen's off the pitch. But, I mean, on the pitch, you know, we, we you almost have to marvel at what they were able to achieve with all the noise going into that game, uh, the, the announcement from Premier Rugby that they would be relegated. And they just got on with it and did what Saracens do and even sort of... Uh, Tied one hand behind their back, giving themselves a red card in the uh, in the first half. Yeah, I mean, I think as ever, you have to kind of try and separate at some point, separate the the shenanigans at, at boardroom level, at financial level, from what's going on on the pitch. You can't forever, certainly, certainly not when you're commentating. You can't forever keep talking about the the salary cap and the breaches and the relegation during the game. Uh, and I know there are a lot of Saracens fans out there who feel that. You know, on occasions we've we've slipped too far one side, kind of in terms of discussing what's been going on. But it has been so seismic that you couldn't possibly have ignored it. But when you look at what they did on the field, it was trademark Saracens, wasn't it? Even with Billy Vanapola going off with his broken arm after five minutes or so, Will Skelton's red at the uh, the back end of the first half, uh, and then you have to factor in. The start that they made, I mean, they were 14 nil up after 12 minutes. And then Racing came back in. And really and honestly, I thought at the outset that, that Racing were going to get blown away because quite obviously Saracens were galvanised by what had happened. And they were, they were so committed and, and so clinical in their execution. Uh, I wasn't totally convinced that Racing had what it took no. to get back in. So when you factor all of those things in and, and then you look at the look at the way they closed it out, it, it was it was trademark Saracens and you have to credit that playing group, however they've been assembled, and we know they've been assembled in in an illegal fashion in terms of Premiership Rugby's regulations, but however they've been assembled, that group of players produce something special yet again. Yeah, and Martin, listen, they, they, they have got form as well with the uh, with the red cards. I mean, last week against Ospreys, they, they went down to, to 14 men and were able to win the game. You know, this week again against superior opponent, they were able to do that. And in many ways, that does reflect the quality of their coaching, that they're able to, to cope with the, you know, with the, you know, with, with things that happen during the game. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it just goes to show that salary cap or no salary cap, I mean, that's that doesn't make that sort of thing that's deep in the heart of these players. And, you know, another thing I want to sort of chuck back at Al is, I mean, let's look what this has now set up, this remarkable quarterfinal against Leinster. And a cynic might suggest that one of the benefits of where Saracens have found themselves is they can now approach the Champions Cup 
with much the same approach in preparation as Leinster do. They don't have to worry about the league. Mm. They can now, and I know we're going to have, what, seven Saracens players half the starting 15 are going to be playing the Six Nations between now and that, that quarter final. Yeah. But when we get there, or in preparation, club-wise, they can just chuck everything into it. <laughs> Might make everyone look and look very hard at how English clubs do prepare for the Champions Cup. I, I was with Brian O'Driscoll over the weekend, and I can safely say that the one team that Leinster didn't want to draw in the quarterfinals is their arch opponent, Saracens. But uh, I guess it is what it is. Um, it's over in Ireland. It'll be after the Six Nations. And I, I guess if you're going to play Saracens, I, I seem to remember, didn't, didn't Leinster beat Saracens in a quarterfinal in Dublin without Billy Vunapola playing for Saracens? So uh, maybe there's uh, some good omens there for them. If we move on to the other sort of key matches across that weekend. I mean, Martin, you were over in Toulouse. There's something special brewing over there. You kind of feel there's a bit of momentum behind the French Giants. 25 years ago, they won the competition. They've won every single game in their pool and they gave us such drama like yesterday. It went down to the last players of the game to see whether they'd qualify second or, or third seeds. That's right. They remain now in the same half of the draw as, as Exeter, but if we get ahead of ourselves, they could well end up playing against Exeter in a semi-final, but in England and not in France. But this is not a difficult sell, these quarterfinals, is it, for those who have to sell the tickets? Watching yesterday, you've got Emil Entomac watching from the sidelines, the man who was the first man to raise the Heineken Cup 25 seasons ago when Toulouse won it. 25 years on, Toulouse are desperate to win it again. His son, Roman, yesterday, in imperious form, alongside Antoine Dupont, and, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was wondering whether Dupont would be fit enough to, to play in the Six Nations because he's had some rotten back problems and I know they've been really concerned about him. But they're charnier, as they call it in France, you know, nine and ten. Dupont and Entomac were sublime yesterday. And I know everybody gets excited about going to the Stade Marcel Michelin with good reason. But when you've got Toulouse in their pomp, as they are now... There is no better place to watch rugby. It was sensational. They obviously um, make it through. Let's talk Exeter. Ali, they've been brilliant throughout this whole European campaign, starting from La Rochelle in that first game where they picked up the bonus point win. How impressed have you been in their, in their European campaign? And more importantly, am I, am I the only former England number eight that thinks that Sam Simmons should, should not only be in the England team, but he should be starting in whatever position he wants to play, six, seven or eight, because quite honestly, he's been the best player in England this season. Yeah, he's incredibly unlucky, isn't he, to have been left out of that Six Nations squad. And it just seems that the more a player is talked up, the less Eddie Jones listens and the more he goes in a different direction. I mean, he actually doesn't have a specialist number eight named in that squad of 34. Um, he's got Ben Earl, who probably is the leading contender to, to play there now. I would have thought that Lewis Ludlam might do the job. Um, but with Billy Van Polar out, I would have thought Sam Simmons was, was tailor-made for it. Obviously, people have questioned his size. Is he, is he, is he big enough um, for the rigours of international rugby as opposed to the top of the club game? Um, but he is so explosive, so dynamic, uh, and he is relentlessly scoring tries as he did on the weekend two more to add to the tally um, he's a fabulous player and he's come back from that nasty ACL injury mm. he hasn't lost a single yard of pace um, and, and he's absolutely intrinsic to what they do the Chiefs look, look, look so much better when he's in that lineup. I mean as a general conversation around their European campaign you know how how different is it when you get off to a great start you mentioned that win 
in La Rochelle. I mean, that has to be one of one of the great um, English performances in France this season. Uh, and, and it just set them off with, with momentum and belief. And of course, they targeted that actually been a bit been a bit ordinary, hadn't they? First few weeks of the Premiership, Exeter. Yeah. Um, but it focused them. It zoned in. And um, and with that behind them, they, they've not really looked like easing off the gas. Although Rob Baxter was quite rude in his in-game interview um, about his play in the first half. He thought they'd been pretty slapdash, a bit sloppy, um, and he was calling for a lot more commitment in defence. I think he felt like you know, they'd already qualified, hadn't they? So this yeah. was all about home yeah. quarterfinal and that the, the necessary application perhaps wasn't there in defence. So not, they're not faultless. They've still got a little way to go. And of course, they're, they're getting some pretty rarefied air now. But I think they're in a good place, a really good place. Well, I guess the only question they've got to ask themselves is um, whether they play that quarterfinal at Sandy Park or whether they, they try and move it to, to somewhere else in, in the southwest. If we, if we just park Exeter for a second and, and, and focus on... Uh, the, the two French clubs. I mean, obviously, Racing had already qualified. We know that. So Saracens were maybe that just didn't give them nece- the necessary bite that they needed to beat Saracens. But uh, let's talk about Clermont, Martin. You're you're very well placed. You do a lot of uh, the commentary over in France. I mean, Clermont. Um, they've had these T-shirts printed up. Is this our year? <laughs> And, um, I and, think they're the same ones from last and they, year and, they, and, they, and, and the year before and the year before that. And they? they've crossed out all the years where they've f- spectacularly failed to win the competition. There's still this nagging doubt with me about Claremont yeah. that they have these moments of, of inactivity during games which you just cannot afford against the, uh, the more superior opponents. But I give you this, they've won 76 out of 82 European games at home, but they have lost this season, earlier on in the season, to Racing. Uh, at home, so yeah. I mean, how, how do you? I mean, what do you make of Clermont? And we'll get on to the skullduggery that happened in the game, where where, <laughs> where the prop went down injured. Um, he, he needs a few BAFTA lessons, I think. He needs he definitely needs a little bit of acting uh, acting class, as does the medic. Well, but it was his so, second showing as well because yeah. he's done it before. Yeah, I think we've got to bear in mind Clermont. I think are going through a period of transition at the moment, so I don't think this is quite the Clermont side as when we had the likes of you know Wesley Fofana in his pomp. Um, so I think they're going to be vulnerable against mm. Racing. Also, we remember that great run which went for four or five years or whatever it was when they won 77 games on the bounce there at the Marcel Michelin. It is not what it was. So the best home record of the big teams at the moment is now at the Ernest Vallon <coughs> with, uh, with yeah. Toulouse. So they are beatable there. And I guess if there's one side who can go there and win, mm. I, think, I, I think it is Racing. I mean, that's... But again, you know, we saw... Racing exposed at the weekend, as we've already discussed. I mean, I was over in France. I didn't see the game. But, but, but Clermont, they're going to be knocking on the door, but I don't think they're going to be quite knocking on it quite as hard as they have done in recent years. Ali, do you... Do you I mean, obviously, not that many Clermont players named in um, Fabian Galtier's squad. Do you think that sort of plays to their, to their strengths, their advantage in any way? I do, I do to some degree, Lowell. But, I mean, I think... But of greater concern um, probably will be that lack of concentration for, for the full 80, in my mind. I, I you know, remember the, the game they played at, uh, at the Kingspan against Ulster when they, they, just, they just weren't there at all. And they really should have been buried by Ulster that day. And, and they weren't. They got away with a, a losing bonus. Um, they are capable of playing the most sublime rugby and you look at their back division in particular, the likes of Raka and Penno and Parin Lopez pulling the strings, and Tuiava doing doing wonderful stuff as well. 
and you just think, well, they're irresistible. Nobody can touch them. And, and there is that feeling, particularly in the Marcel Michelin, um, when their tails are up and you just think, well, they're unplayable at this point. But it, but it is in patches, isn't it? And if you're not on it for the full 80 against teams like Leinster yeah. uh, to lose right now, certainly Saracens, you're going to get picked off at some point. It's not good enough to play in spells. You have to play across the board. Uh, that would be my only concern for them. I, I think they'll probably come through that quarterfinal, riding high at home. Um, thereafter, I don't I don't know. I'd love to see it because, my God, it'd be fun if they pulled it off. I mean, Leinster and Ulster, let's start with Leinster. I mean, they've been they've been so good and there's been so many other stories happening across the, the, the rugby landscape that we've almost sort of forgotten that they've actually qualified as, as number one seeds. They've, you know, they've, they're unbeaten. Um, they've developed a whole load more players. And they still, for me, with home advantage, even against the mighty European champion Saracens, they still, Ali, seem like the team to beat in this competition. It's hard to disagree with that. Their depth is something extraordinary at the moment. They're very well organised, aren't they? Incredibly cold and calculating and clinical. Stuart Lancaster's obviously done great things there since joining forces with Leo Cullen. They know exactly the sort of game they're going to play. Uh, everything is focused, as you previously hinted at. Everything is focused towards Europe. You know, the Pro 14, they can they can get away with a little bit more and they know that they're going to be in the mix come the end of the season. Europe is everything. And and what about these youngsters in the back row in particular, the likes of, of, of Caelan Doris and Max Deegan all breaking through, adding to an already ludicrous squad list yeah. in, in that department in particular. That they all they all look like they're ready to go, not just at provincial level, but at, at international level, almost fresh out of school. The pathway yeah. there is so special. They've got everybody moving in the right direction. And as a consequence, you've got this fabulous blend of that youth and the experience as well. That the, the guys who've been there and done it, the Sextons, the Henshaws, you know, now people like Cronin, very well established. And, and, and just that mix, that blend is, is magnificent for them at the moment. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I totally agree with you on, on the Deegan and, and, and Doris, um, you know, double act. I mean, that'd be a shock horror, wouldn't it? Playing a number eight. At number eight, It'd be fantastic um, at international level. Move on, anyway. Um, Ulster, they're, they're sort of hanging around, aren't they? Really, with uh, I mean, they deserve to be in the quarterfinals yeah. because they they produce a magnificent rugby against a, a Bath and a Harlequin side that probably were not at their best at that time. Um, and John Cooney has been in superb form. I mean, he'd certainly be on any shortlist for European Player of the Year at the moment. I guess the you know, Dan McFarlane, you know, is 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 doing some interesting stuff at Ulster. You just wonder against the star-studded likes of a Leinster or a Saracens or a Toulouse uh, or even an Exeter whether they've they've quite got enough stardust, not least getting through against a team like Toulouse. Yeah, they, I mean, they're not going to go any further, are they? I think they're up against Toulouse. Um, Toulouse deciding at the moment whether they want to take the match to the big stadium across the city in Toulouse, whether it's at the Ernest Vallon or the football stadium. They are going to sort of meet the same sort of challenge that Gloucester did yesterday. I mean, Ulster clearly are well worthy of their place in the top eight, but that's pretty much, I think, where they are in Europe, and that's what we've seen so far. I don't really see them progressing. It, it In my mind, it does look like 
a three-team tournament. It's it's Leinster whose biggest match before the final certainly comes next time up. I think that other half of the draw, very difficult. You can't put a cigarette paper between Exeter and Toulouse if those two come to meet one another at Ashton Gate or wherever it's played. But uh, but yeah, I'm, you know, it's, it's going to be a cracking final when we get to um, to Marseille, which is one reason why Toulouse are particularly hot on getting there. Ali, let's just finish with uh, with, with Northampton Saints. I mean, they've uh, they've, they've sort of recovered from the um, from the double battering from Leinster in in the middle of that group, and and they've done remarkably well, really, to to, to qualify. And you know, some new faces, obviously they. they they're well served by the likes of Bigger and Reinach and Courtney Laws, but the likes of George Furbank, Fraser Dingwall, just named in the uh, in Eddie Jones's England squad, Alex Moon. I mean, it's you know, it's 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 an interesting thing that's going on at Northampton. They feel like a team on the up at the minute. Everything stems from Chris Boyd, doesn't it? Since his arrival and his willingness to throw in this incredibly talented batch of youngsters and, and give them their heads, give them some confidence. And a license to play a little bit because I think you know traditionally Saints had, had been certainly in their in their pomp in their heyday when they were winning the Premiership back in 2014. It was all centered around a big, big, heavy pack, a lot of heavy carrying. It was the power game, wasn't it? And this is this is much more Super Rugby, and they've still got a little way to go, and they don't have a monster pack at the moment. But what they do have is that invigorating excitement and enthusiasm of the youngsters. Um, you mentioned Furbank and Dingwall probably at the front of that queue. Uh, but players at the moment aren't even getting getting game time, like James Grayson, who's, who's back up to Dan Bigger, who looks absolutely uh, to the manner born. They are profiting from... That it has to be that sort of that that fresh vibe that that Boyd has given them. Um, they're enjoying their rugby. Honestly, going to watch them train a few years back and watching them now is like watching two different teams. The yeah. speed at which everything is executed. Yeah. There's been a massive emphasis on skill, uh, particularly on the real basics. It sounds obvious. Um, everybody always talks about the All Blacks, don't they? They they just do the the basics better than everybody else. But that the catch pass. You know, it's simple things like that, but it happens at lightning speed now. And you see that they're comfortable in that fast-paced offloading game. And they're, they're catching a few teams out. Sometimes mm. it goes wrong. And, of course, they might get steamrolled now and again by, by a brute force pack. Um, you know, look, look what happened when they went to Dublin. You know, Leinster put pay to that. They're still a team building and growing and bolting bits on. And they're not there yet, but this is a big step forward to to make the quarterfinals. Um, you know, Boyd, obviously, <clears throat> probably a little bit ahead of schedule making the playoffs in the Premiership last season. So I think everything's on track. It's it's looking like a happy place at the moment. I couldn't agree more. Listen, we, we always have a, a god or goddess of the week. So I guess this week, it, it's, it's a, who is your European god or goddess? Martin, if I could start with you, it doesn't have to be an Englishman, of course. It could be anyone from across Europe or a personality in rugby that's caught your eye that deserves, you know, that heady status. It could be Antoine Dupont or Amman Entomac, but it's not. It could be the referee in the game down at uh, Poe, Poe against Leicester in the Challenge Cup. The referee showed a yellow card, but somehow Poe kept 15 men on the pitch for quite a while. <laughs> it's not him. We won't embarrass him. But a serious point, I think that it's going to be gods and goddesses of the week. I think that I think we need to tip our hats to the ladies and gents of the press, particularly the written press. Now, we know that the sort of easy part of their job, even when you've got tight deadlines, is watching matches and, and writing reports. But the tougher side and the more responsible side and the side why we need a written press is because we need them to hold those in power to account. 
And that's why we are where we are at the moment with Saracens. And it may not seem at the moment that we're in the greatest place, but I reckon a couple of years down the tracks, rugby will be a better place, hopefully with a new, powerful, and I think above all, compliant Saracens. So I think that the... The boys and girls of the written press, I think, have done a stunning job in the last year. Why, thank you. <laughs> Alistair? Yeah, mine's, mine's going to be a little bit um, less prosaic, probably um, in some regards to, to Martin, uh, you know, which I would wholeheartedly echo because it's not, it's not easy for, for those who are writing day in, day out, particularly covering such a thorny story with so little detail, um, which, which um, is another matter to be discussed, of course, at a different time, perhaps. But... Um, I'm going to go for George Furbank just because this is the week that he's won a first call up to an England squad and he scored an absolute screamer of a try against Lyon. It was kind of old school fullback play, um, tucked himself in behind, came on the angle, ripped round the outside defence on the arc and scored a peach. So mine is George Furbank of Northampton. Okay, and mine uh, goes to Sam Simmons for being the best back row forward in the country. Scored another two tries at the weekend for Exeter. Has been in imperious form coming back from an ACL, and I know what that feels like. You're being provocative. And has still not been picked in the England squad. So Sam Simmons uh, has been my god of the week. And my thanks to Ali Eakin, to Martin Gillingham, as well, of course, to Owen Slot and Alex Lowe, who joined us from Twickenham. The Ruck will return next Monday. Make sure you never miss an episode. Subscribe now via Acast, iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.